0: Hey, Deserving Listeners. So today we have Rebecca on the podcast, and I thought we would read patron emails and answer them. What do you say, Rebecca? I'm so ready. This is the Psychology Seattle Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca?
1: I am Rebecca Bloom. I am a licensed mental health counselor. I have a private practice in South Seattle.
0: And if anyone is wondering what all that background noise is, it's because Rebecca is on her porch overlooking Lake Washington and enjoying the afternoon sun.
1: If you're going to live your best life, Seattle in the summer, you get 60 days of sun. You better go outside as much as you possibly can.
0: Yeah. Anonymous patron, she writes, Can you talk about white silence and white people's general lack of interest in black issues in the United States? I'm asking because I think we need more non-black individuals advocating and educating people about the stigma and syst- and systematic racism in our country. Can you give your insight and experience into being an ally? What are some things you think white folks can do better? Rebecca, when I got this email, I thought of you and I saved it for you. What would you say to that? How, what What's your experience and uh, about being an ally and what can we do? to educate people and reduce stigma and reduce racism
1: well there's so much to learn and with the election coming up like I just watched this video that taught about how the electoral college is really a cornerstone of slavery we have all these parts of our American culture that we don't even realize are rooted in our slave our history of slavery and that this country was built on slavery and couldn't have been built without slavery um, and so there's some really deep structural things to learn, and that means you know, taking the time to do it and handling your own shock and confusion that you never learned these things before to kind of put the systemic racism in place. Why does the prison system imprison black men at five times the rate of white men. What's going on there? How does how does something like that happen? Um, so I think you know, we, there's the first step is kind of educating yourself, and the second step is is speaking up when you see something, when you see an injustice. And in our culture. I don't know when this will air, but to watch the protests of the Black Lives Matter movement has just been amazing. And just last night or this morning. John Lewis passed away. Who was a civil rights leader and a congressman for years and years and years. And you know, there's there's ways to stand up for injustice. There's lots of different ways to do it. Uh, it's uncomfortable. He has, I think, he was in prison five times for his protesting. So you know, you might have to step outside of your comfort zone. It might be uncomfortable. You might lose for friends for a while as as you kind of you know state your ground. But all of these things are incredibly important if we're gonna. Change uh, how inherently racist our culture is.
0: Yeah, the two of us could could talk for days about this issue. Um, the first thing I'll say is uh, just to situate myself. I'm I'm half white, and, and I definitely understand what it, it is like to be half white. But I'm but I'm half Japanese. I'm half I'm half person of color, and so which makes me a person of color. When you have any drop of color in this country, you are considered the other. You are considered not from this country. You're stereotyped more this kind of thing. On one hand, I definitely have privilege as a man, as someone with education, as someone who isn't black, for example. But I definitely understand what it's like to be the target of racism and could talk at length about how I've been discriminated against in in multiple ways, particularly when I was younger, and including uh, people assuming that I'm white, which I have to say is massively offensive to me. I I suppose it might be a similar thing for people to assume someone's gender or something. It's just it's so much a part of who I am. And of course, white people have been pointing out the fact that I'm different my entire life. And so to sometimes just have this notion that I'm somehow white all of a sudden is like, well, that's not the way I've been treated my whole life. So, and then other people say like, you're not a real person of color. And it's just, it's just all sorts of nonsense anyway. So that's, that's my, where I'm situated. But what are some things that you're asking anonymous patron? What are some things that white folks can do better? And I think a lot of people are doing this, but just to formalize what I think would be good is listen more, just listen, you know, and seek out, BIPOC voices, seek out black, indigenous, people of color voices. Uh, for me, because, you know, I, I know about Asians. I know about my side of things, but I don't know what it's like to be a black person. I don't know what it's like to be an, a Native American. I don't know what it's like to be um, an undocumented worker in Washington state. And so I listen to those voices and I seek those out. And it's easy as a white person to. Say, well, I'm good and I'm well-intentioned, but then not actually seek out those voices to not actually do your homework, so to speak. The next thing that I'll say is, is be okay with your own privilege and your own racist attitudes. I mean, one of the biggest steps that you can take as an ally, as a person of privilege of any sort, whether it's white or male or heterosexual, is to just say, you know what? I have privilege. Uh, I, I, I'm treated better on average than people in other groups. And I've probably absorbed some bigoted attitudes because we all have, and it's understandable and don't get defensive about that. And that's a hard step to make, by the way, (laughs) I made that step probably in my early twenties. I'm, I'm guessing it was a long time ago and it wasn't easy. And I've been continually having to iterate on that stuff it's not like you ever achieve full enlightenment so but that's another thing. it's like seek out voices, but also own your own privilege privilege, and just accept it be okay it, it you're not a bad doesn't make you a bad person that you have privilege and that you have racist attitudes it doesn't it doesn't make you a bad person it's it's okay now if you don't use it responsibly then yes, it does make you a bad person. (laughs) If you don't use your privilege in a way that helps other people, then you are participating in a moral system of our society to stand back and just watch uh, privilege and oppression, you know, and marginalization play itself out and do nothing is not okay. The other thing is, is to have empathy for the frustration of people of color and Black and Native American people in particular in the United States, because you, you might see anger on the news channel, you might see people lashing out, you might see people making fun of white people, you might see people saying unfair things, and that might hurt your feelings. But if you have empathy for and under and you 've listened to the voices and you realize your privilege, then you 'll have empathy for those expressions. When you are crapped upon every day, it's understandable that you're going to be a little upset and you're not going to have the best attitude all the time. And so have empathy for that frustration. Say, wow, that person is going through a whole other world that I don't know about. And just, you know, have a question mark there. That's a big thing because I see a lot of white people saying, well, I don't understand why those people are I understand speaking out, but I don't understand those kinds of things. It's like, well, it's possible you have no effing clue what those people are going through because of your privilege. And so just check that and have some empathy for their frustration. And the last thing I'll say is vote against white supremacy, people. We have a chance. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I think we can all agree that white supremacy is immoral, is wrong, is silly, and don't allow voices of white supremacy to be legitimized. I don't care what kind of other political ideas you have. Baseline human dignity for all Americans is a must, and white supremacy has got to go. And these people have to be marginalized and shunted off to the dark corners of the internet. They should not be Given a platform to talk about their ridiculousness and spread their ideas in a society that should know better. So please, for the love of God, vote against white supremacy.
1: So have we talked about that I went to middle school with Tucker Carlson? No. no. (laughs) So uh so I'll talk about my privilege for a moment. So I am a so I am a Jewish woman. I am ninety-eight point six percent Ashkenazi Jew, according to my DNA test. Up until the nineteen fifties, Jews were considered a racial minority. Um, part of the fight of European Jews during the fifties and the sixties were be part of the post Holocaust fight was to be perceived as quote white. So I have an interesting position of being in a kind of a newly seen as white minority but Jews were viewed as completely other for thousands and thousands of years but currently in American culture I can I pass but you know I am technically white Um, now so and I've skirted in and out of privileged environments um, throughout my life Um, And I went to private schools and public schools kind of on and off, back and forth. And um, in the mid-80s, I was in San Diego at this private school, and Tucker Carlson was one of my classmates. (laughs) Um, And he might have been the year under me. But to see him now pontificate as if he understands America and how America should be is it's not only deeply troubling to me, but it's also on another level really hysterical because I know the privilege that he came from in San Diego in the 80s. Everybody had, you know, I mean, he grew up with maids in his house without, I mean, everybody had help in their house from probably a woman of Hispanic descent. So this idea that, like, he understands how America should be, you know, he has lived he has gotten every single privilege of when we think of a privileged white male, Tucker Carlson is that person. And the idea that he kind of speaks and says, you know, who is American and who is not American right now is just fascinating to me. And I think having just watched Hamilton on Disney plus, this idea of like who controls the narrative, who sets history, who says what happened and how that history gets set and redefined is a big part of white privilege. So to know that the history that you learned, if you took textbooks and if you didn't go to the Oakland Public Schools like I did, you probably didn't learn it as a young person, um, that there's many ways that America got built and you might not know the whole story. Um, and just, you know, you've talked often about Japanese internment, like what it means to have had wealth for a while and then have all of that taken away and then have to start over and deny that narrative. Like that is the history of racism. And that's what impacts our our culture. And also, you know, we live, American culture is so built on wealth. And I've heard the statistic that the average American family has a $1,000 of intergenerational wealth. The average black woman has less than a dollar. So there are these ways in which the system is not just about race, but it also filters down through class and through gender and all these ways that people get marginalized and just have less. Um, And just have more struggle. Like, medications aren't tested on people who are like you and so when you're told by your doctor to take them, they don't work for you. And then your doctor tells you you're not trying hard enough. Or doesn't take your symptoms seriously and you know, you're five times more likely to die of COVID than a white man. Like there, you know, this stuff is playing out really clearly right now. Right. So the part that I would also add to what you said is that, um, when you show up to like a black lives matter space or, um, in the internet and I have an experience of being told I was doing this wrong recently is, um, not only show up to, to listen, but really accept black leadership and what's being asked of you. Um, and that, that may be really different. You may have some great ideas and ways you'd like to see things go. But just respect, if you're a white person right now and you're in a Black Lives Matter space, you're there to, to bring your body and support, but your ideas aren't really needed right now. Things are in motion without you. And I think if you've been in a privileged space your whole life, that can be really overwhelming. And we're seeing that now with COVID and people being asked to wear masks and just horrified that they have to change their behavior for the public good. Um, That you know, behavior change will be asked of you. you. You'll be asked to behave differently than you have in other spaces. As a white person, you're probably being used to being able to speak up all the time and having your voice being heard. Right now, other people's voices need to Right. And that can be a big shift.
0: Sounds like you're sawing a log there. You saw a log. Just drinking a... <laughs> are you <laughs> scraping the, the can along the ground? It sounds like... you're just... No,
1: I just took a sip of water <laughs> after my long speech. I was just thirsty.
0: Um, wherever you are, if you're a white person or a person of any kind of privilege, wherever you are on that spectrum from complete ignorance to enlightenment, wherever you are, try to push yourself to the next level. And that, what that involves is putting your own narcissism aside for a second, putting your own viewpoint aside, which is really hard for people to do. You know, it's really hard for people to say, I am probably wrong about many things. You know, it's hard for people to admit that, but that is a... A big step in, one, recognizing your own privilege, and and thus, from that, you actually are given the chance to change the world uh, in small and big ways. But so wherever you are, whether it's about trans issues, whether it's about sexual orientation issues, whether it's about undocumented folks issues, whether it's about gender, sexism, racism classism uh, just assume that wherever you are on the spectrum you're not where you're going to be in the future as you become more enlightened that that your idea that your initial ideas of things your reactivity might not necessarily be in line with the way you're going to see it in the future when you're more enlightened you know if i could talk to myself when i was 18 years old this is what i would say i would say dude you think you know stuff, but you don't. <laughs> and it feels like you know things, but you don't. And it, it, when you're privileged, it's easy to assume that you're right and assume that the angry black man is just doing it to himself. It's easy to say that because you get to say that and go back to the mainstream majority culture and live in your bubble because that's that's always available to you. You can always go back to white supremacy. It, it's it's a warm blanket of ignorance that it, you can wrap around you at any time. But if you want to be a moral human being and you want to actually be a good person and try to change the world, you got to like throw away that blanket and that's not that's not comfortable. And you've got to step out into some spaces where you're the one being yelled at even though you feel like you didn't do anything, and you just have to be okay with that within reason, but that's a that's a big part of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the idea that like, well, this happens all the time when these subjects come up. I've yet I mean, who hasn't yelled when <laughs> the subject comes up at someone that you're trying to convince? Like, the idea that these conversations could be nice or easy or no one's feelings are going to get hurt or you won't have to look at anything differently or have any hard feelings or look differently at your family. There's this amazing video about this woman in Rhode Island who begins to put together that the fact that her family has these huge mansions and everyone else around her that she grew up with have these huge mansions is because of intergenerational wealth built on the slave trade. And she starts to kind of dig into that and realize all these uncomfortable truths about her family. And that, you know, I mean, this process is not fun, but it does change the world. And we're seeing how it it changes the world. And I remember, so I went to the Evergreen State College for undergrad, and this type of... Then it was called multicultural understanding, now it's, you know, more called... um, equity and diversity and justice work um, I felt guilty a lot I felt bad. I imagined that there were other people I had to begin imagining there were other people who understood the world with complexity in ways that I didn't understand and it's not a great feeling it's not necessarily fun but it gets you to a better place and it gets you to a place that you can move through the complexity of our world with, with a deeper understanding and, and try and move the world to a more just place. And I think that's the, the best work out there. I mean, in, in Judaism, they call it tikkun olam, to leave the world better than you found it. And, you know, that's that's the best work out there. I don't know what else anyone else is up to
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh and I I remember uh, along those lines when I first started really realizing what sexism was in my 20s. There was that transition where at first it felt it felt bad to me. I felt like I was being accused of something that I hadn't that people either didn't know I had done or at the very least I didn't think I had done. I felt like just as just because I was a man, I was assumed guilty or guilty by association or something and it feels bad it doesn't feel good to be accused as you white privileged people it feels bad and and people are entitled to those bad feelings but that's part of the process
1: and what's it like for you now to be in the role of being a man confronting other men about their sexism and not making the women in the group pipe up you know what I'm saying
0: yeah. Uh, well, so whenever this topic sort of comes up, because people will sometimes say, "Well, you as a man, you can't really talk about sexism." They'll say, "Not everyone, of course, but some people will say that." So, I, you're not saying that, <laughs> but it, I'm asking you to yeah, do it. I'm yeah, saying the opposite. Yeah, but saying
1: like, I don't want this job anymore, and I'd rather you do
0: it. Right, but the so so but. Both things are related to this overall thing that I feel in my heart that I find to be in contrast to the, the way that those kinds of questions get asked to me, which is that I either don't identify with any particular group. Like I don't really, I don't identify with men, for example, I, I am a man. I'm not trans. For example, I, my gender is male. I, I, have the privilege of being a man. So it's not like I'm genderless, but, but I don't really identify as being a man. What I identify is as a human being. And when I hear about other human beings being treated unfairly, I don't care who they are. I don't care if I'm in that group or I'm not in that group. It still affects me very similarly. I don't have to, I don't have to drum up anything to get excited and, uh, and angry about marginalization of a group I'm not a part. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, so the example I used to give, so I taught multicultural counseling for, I taught it nine times in eight years. So I had some examples that I would stick to, of like what is being an ally look like? And, you know, sometimes it's you, because of your privilege, are doing some heavy lifting that a person of color would be ignored. So the example I give, I used to live on Beacon Hill. You used to live like a block from my old house. Um, 98118 No, that's 98114. The zip code I'm in right now, 98118, is one of the most diverse zip codes in America, which is pretty fascinating. Um, Beacon Hill is very much very diverse. Asian, Eritrean, um, Hispanic Americans, Latinx. There's white folks, low income. At the time that I lived there, there was no high income. There is now. So we lived on this funny street, and it would flood in the winter. And one year, it flooded really, really bad to the point where people's cars were kind of underwater, And I was talking to my neighbor, who was a Mexican-American, about, like, what are we going to do about this? And he's like, I I can't call the city. They won't listen to me. And I realized, as the white woman, I had to call the city. So I got on the phone, and she's like, you know, that that place doesn't exist. There's no great there. And I'm like, it does exist. (laughs) I'm standing right here. And then I realized, you know, I had a phone. I was like, do you want me to email you a picture? Right now I'm standing in a foot of water. I could just email you the photo. And it was like that point of privilege, like, you know, I have a phone. I can take a picture. I can send that picture out to someone other than you. And I can say, like, you didn't help me. Um, but that there is, there is work that we have to do. And, and there's a voice that we have to use and amplify for other people who won't get heard. Um, And that's a really important piece of this work. And when I hear, like, from my white friends that they're up in the super white part of Seattle up where you are every day out on Greenwood Avenue North with their Black Lives Matter posters, it's like, oh, wow. (laughs) They're doing the work right now instead of asking, you know, so it's fascinating to ask around, like, what? the Black Lives Matter protests that people have been in. I went to one um, in my neighborhood. They expected 300 people. 10,000 people showed up. And, you know, there was an order to things. Black people marched first. And then white allies behind. And, And I think that's kind of... Um, that would be a stretch for some people, but that's what needs to happen right now. And that is okay. That there is a structure right now to, um, black voices being heard first and white allies amplifying those black voices. That's a, that's a change. Yeah. Instead of, you know, I, I'm curious how much of those kind of white helper movies are going to get made right now. like, the white teacher goes into the black school and makes it better. Like, I'm curious if the age of those movies are over and now it's the black teacher in the black school telling that story. There's some ways that we've dealt with race, this kind of like white savior complex. And you know, that's inherently racist. (laughs) And do we need to keep doing that anymore?
0: Yeah. I, I, I think a lot of things in the media are at least going to be attenuated because of, Uh, increased awareness and in case people are maybe unaware of this. So uh, in our history of uh, our society and in storytelling uh, for, since white people control the media and, and have always and white people will be upset about being accused of racism or something, there's this, compulsion to create a story to let white people off the hook and one of the ways that you do that is you create a story like Green Book, for example where a a white savior comes in and uh, saves the black person and what this does for white audiences is it gives the white audience this reprieve of like yeah, white people are good. And and the way that white people can be good is they can sweep in and and save black people from their problems, you know? And and it also highlight, or it also proposes this idea that racism is solely this individualized experience instead of a systemic uh, institutionalized phenomenon uh, that can never be changed by a few good white, like few well-meaning white people, you know. So, uh, more recently, those kinds of stories are being criticized by aware people and scholars uh, for that reason. So, you know, the uh, a better story to tell is when, as we, as you've been saying, Rebecca is if you want to create a story about racism, it's about empowerment for the marginalized people and how the privileged people, i.e. white people, sit back and say, okay, uh, what do you want me to do? <laughs> um, because this isn't my show, necessarily. You know, because didn't Green Book win Best it Oscar? Won di- best just Picture. Just last year? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I just can't imagine that movie getting best or even being nominated or even being made uh, in in today's world. And, and that's a good thing. Now it's not like the thing, you know, on the scale of all the things, of course, police brutality, death of black people, people being kept in economic poverty uh, and so on are, I would estimate to be more important things, but of course, storytelling and movies and representation is also is also important so advice to white people (laughs) is we have a long way to go we have a lot of things to do and we might have to make sacrifices and there there are just a lot of questions and it doesn't mean that everything is off the table like if you like green book for example i just want to say if you if you're anyone of any color and you like green book that's also okay. You can like the movie. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you like the movie. It just means that when you watch the movie, you understand how this fits into the broader context and the and the messages that it's trying to tell and how it affects you. Does do you feel like it lets you off the hook or does it compel you to action? You know, that those are the questions you want to ask yourself as a privileged person.
1: And also that I often hear like what can I do? to go home and convince my family now that racism exists. And I would just say that these are long conversations. It's probably more than one conversation and something is going to have to happen for your relative for their own process to occur. This is a developmental process. This doesn't happen overnight. It's so
0: Um, hard though, Rebecca, though, like, like, like I, You know, I have some extended family who need to have that conversation, but, and I'm a, I would like to think of myself as an outspoken person, an opinionated person who doesn't shy away from saying things. But I have to say, like, there are extended family members that I I just don't say a thing because I I just don't want to get into it with them at Thanksgiving. Like, what do you do?
1: Uh, You know, I mean, I am hashtag blessed. I have a ridiculously. Uh, liberal family, and so in a way, I can speak to this from an incredible point of privilege. I haven't had to have a lot of these conversations um, it, with my direct family. But while well, I will say, so in Jewish families, it tends to be the Israel issue, and I've gotten a huge fight. Um, but, it's, but I've seen change in my lifetime. I've seen, you know, over 20 years of fighting with my in laws. They have changed their views on Israel being their single voter issue. So change is possible. But this idea that like you could have the one thing to say to somebody and they will change, that's just unrealistic and I want to let people off the hook about that. You can, you can change your own behavior. You can change your own mind. You can work on changing other people's minds. But if their minds don't change, they need to hear it from someone else, not just you. I see a lot of people, you know, hitting, hitting their head against the wall, trying to change someone else's mind. And This is long-term work. It's not short-term work. I mean, I think this is the five-year anniversary of the Black Lives Matter movement, was last week. You know, and the, the first round of protests were pretty localized. Five years later, it's a worldwide movement.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember when the Black Lives Matter movement began, and it was ridiculed even by people that I think would later support it. It was seen as this ridiculous, angry black people or angry people, angry college students, you know, the with victim mentality, this kind of thing. And so when Black Lives Matter, the movement, kicked into high gear after George Floyd died, I thought, well, this isn't going to, this isn't going to work, uh, because Americans think black lives matter is stupid. <laughs> uh, and I, I just didn't see it working. I I'd given up long time ago. And so I was really, really shocked that it caught so much steam and cut and really got into the mainstream, which, uh, I just thought was fantastic, I don't know if you know colin Kaepernick, I mean, didn't you live in the in the San Francisco area for a while? oh yes, so colin Kaepernick, you know, the kneeling at football games, like there was a time when it was a minor there were a minority of n f l fans such as myself who supported him. I mean, there were certainly a lot of people who supported him, but definitely the n f l didn't support him, and coaches didn't support him blah blah blah, and of course a lot of Americans that support him. And now all of a sudden, most in my understanding of how people are seeing Colin Kaepernick, every, most people are totally behind him, including a lot of people in the NFL. And the fact that they're changing the Redskins uh, is like, I didn't, I didn't think I would see that in my lifetime. I've been railing about that for years. The fact that they're tearing down statues of Christopher Columbus. I did not think I would see that ever in my lifetime. When I learned the true story of Columbus, at some point in my, I think when I was in my 20s, I learned the true story of Christopher Columbus, I was appalled that we had a national holiday, and that we had the Columbia River, and we were naming uh, space shuttles Columbia, and we have District of Columbia, and this is... Uh, I mean, those things are named after Christopher Columbus, right?
1: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well,
0: Well, I don't know. At at any rate, we have a Christopher Columbus Day, and there's certainly lots of statues. Once I learned the real story of Christopher Columbus and the genocide, literal genocide, that him and his people, with him as the leader, inflicted upon the people of the Caribbean, I thought to myself... How is it that we have a day for this man? I, you know, why do we venerate this person? It's absurd. And so, but I, every Columbus Day would come around. I'd rant and rave and I'd scream. And But I, I feel like even people who understood racism, they just like, well, I don't know, Columbus Day, who cares? I'm like, no, <laughs> this is wrong. Like there's so many other things we could be putting on pedestals why this it's just so stupid and and now we're doing it and i i'm like whoa what a hopeful vision i have for the future now that these you know maybe maybe our society can change maybe movements can work it's 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 very hopeful because i had become quite cynical like (laughs) like when i saw minnesota minneapolis burning i thought Well, that's an isolated event. This will die off. Tomorrow there'll be a new news cycle. There'll be a new, you know, sort of Trump thing that'll come up and everyone will be distracted. And I just didn't think anything was going to happen. And then other cities started to join in and then Seattle got really into it. And I was like, it took me a while to realize like, oh, I can actually believe. I can actually have hope. I can actually start participating because early on I just thought well what's the point I've I've talked about this for decades and nothing's happened
1: so there's two things I want to say if people want a, a beautifully done master class it's on Netflix on the history of Christopher Columbus and the genocide upon the indigenous people of the Americas John Leglazamo's Latin history for morons is this one man show
0: yeah I love that
1: I got to see it in person. He's my hero. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I don't know if we've gotten a chance to talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, and I just want to say what some of the things that I did that have been really impactful for me. And one of them is an art project. So I know that you asked me, from time to time, you asked me, like, you know, Rebecca, how are you processing this artistically? Um, so after George Floyd was murdered for eight minutes uh, by a police force in Minneapolis, one of the things that came out of it was the uh, hashtag George Floyd portrait project. And um, so I, I don't consider myself a realistic artist, but I tried doing it, and it was extremely powerful to draw his face. Um, I realized in doing that I've never... You know, I, I was in art school on and off for six years. I I don't think I'd ever drawn a black man in my life. Um, and so it was powerful t- to draw his face and really think about him while I was doing that. I also did a Breonna Taylor one as well. But if people are looking to connect in the movement and they don't feel safe going outside and protesting, um, learning more about these kind of portrait projects and doing your own portrait of people that we've lost um to police murdering black and indigenous people it's a powerful way to connect into the story
0: rebecca where can people go to find your art
1: so i'm on instagram at r text r the letter r t e x t
0: everyone out there please take care of yourself rebecca why should they take care of themselves
1: well, we sure need you to vote on November 3rd, so keep yourself breathing until then.
0: <laughs> at least until then. Then, <laughs> After to-
1: that, you need to stop breathing. I wish you'd keep breathing, but I understand. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep Ruth Bader Ginsburg breathing till November 3rd. That's like my personal mission at this point. <laughs>